0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of The Zeitgeist, the AICGS podcast. We are really delighted to have with us today uh, David O'Sullivan who has had a career of over 40 years in public service, um, with, mostly with the European Union, uh, and uh, most recently as the ambassador of the European Union to the United States from 2014 to 2019. Uh, David O'Sullivan is now Senior Counselor at Steptoe & Johnson, um, and he is here today with us and Senior Fellow and Director of the Geoeconomics Program. Peter rushish and I are going to talk about the U.S. agenda with the European Union, uh, some of the uh, priorities that are out there, and, uh, and in particular, um, how the United States can engage effectively with its European partners under a new administration. Um, uh, but maybe to look uh, uh, backwards for just one second, uh, David, um, uh, thank you for being with us today and, uh, and for taking time. I wanted to start off just by asking if there are kind of in your personal experience, having worked with the Obama administration, but also with the Trump administration for three years, um, any anecdotes that stand out to you and that kind of give us an indication of how things might change uh, under the, the the new administration?
1: Well, I mean, uh, there, are, there are perhaps many stories I could tell, but um, yeah, I, I think the, the the thing that really remains in my mind was the sort of, psychological shock that hit washington uh, after the after the results of the election and particularly after the uh, the inauguration and you know how unprepared everyone was for this and the scramble to you know who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who, knew someone who could put you in contact with with someone in the entourage of of president trump uh, and uh, this was really quite a challenge for diplomats because frankly I mean, it wasn't just that we'd failed to do our job of, of, of having sufficient contacts. It was also that it was a very disorganized campaign and a very disorganized administration in the early days. Uh, it was very difficult to figure out who was doing what. Uh, and it, sometimes you'd be talking to people and then you know, a few days later, you'd see that they'd fired or that they'd left so the 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 you know the 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 literal chaos of the first few few weeks of the administration were deeply challenging for for all diplomats and the other point i would just make is that of course what was particularly difficult for for me was the clear animus which the president felt towards the european union as such and towards the process of european integration i mean i think this was an absolute novelty we I mean, we've had presidents who had had difficulties with European Union issues or you know conflicts with the European Union, but we'd never had someone who actually said, you know the European Union is worse than China, only smaller. Uh, the European Union was created by Germany to damage the United States and so forth. Uh, and that did not make it easy to to have relations with the um, the new administration but on the finally then just on the positive side we had that very very productive meeting between President Juncker and President Trump in the Oval Office uh, in July of 2018 where we kind of reached a sort of I suppose I'd use the phrase armistice uh, on trade issues Um, and you know that actually that went very well that meeting so you know there you are two two kind of negatives and uh, I won't say a positive but something which showed that you know it was possible sometimes to do business.
0: Yeah, well, and and I think uh, to to take that uh, point and turn then to the current administration, I think, uh, you know, rhetorically, uh, President Biden has been, uh, you know, extremely interested in restoring American relationships and working with allies. You you heard it repeatedly from him on the campaign trail uh, and also from his uh, senior officials and nominees. So uh, it seems to me that now there's a, a problem, not of the adversarial um, uh, view that you described at the start of the Trump administration toward the European Union, but instead that there is so much um, that people want to, want to accomplish. And and I'd be really interested to hear your view of how those things should be prioritized because you can't do everything at once. So of course there are trade issues, Boeing, Airbus um, is uh, is one, Um, There are questions about digital taxation. Uh, There are the tariff uh, issues that relate to steel and aluminum. Uh, All of these are big and that have been a burden, um, a potential burden for a while. But where do you think the United States and the European Union should start? Well, I I think...
1: There are two immediate positives with this administration. I mean, one is the change of tone and style, which you know will be extremely welcome—a degree of civility and a degree of uh, 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 receptiveness to, to to rational discussion, uh, which will be you know warmly welcomed. And and secondly. Um, some of the policy decisions, the return, the return to Paris, the return, rejoining the WHO, uh, a willingness to, to look again at the uh, JCPOA with, with Iran, uh, a, a renewed commitment to allies and multilateralism. So all of that is, is already, you know, a, a huge positive. Um, in, in terms of, you know, how to prioritize, I think on both sides, we have to recognize that the pandemic casts a very long shadow. Uh, over both the United States and over Europe. Uh, And both sides are gonna have a priority of kind of domestic issues, so to speak. Uh, We understand this uh, uh, on the US side. I mean, President Biden's first 100 days will be judged probably by how he deals with the pandemic. Uh, We also understand that his priority is to look after, American workers, uh, American middle class first, uh, and to deal with trade and other issues, perhaps in the second phase. Um, equally on the European side, we have a, you know, a major crisis with this pandemic, uh, uh, a public health crisis, a vaccine crisis, but then also, uh, an economic crisis, which is, which is going to go, which goes with it and which will continue to, to haunt us even when we get the public health crisis under control. Having said that, I think what would be great would be if we could, to use the, the, the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm, right? If we, could, if we could at least kind of stop annoying each other. Um, and if at all possible, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, but I think one gesture that could be made by the US side would be to immediately lift the, the 232 steel and aluminium tariffs, which are felt as deeply unfair and illegal, um, and also to rule out the idea of the auto tariffs. I mean, I don't think that would cost a lot, but it would be, it would be a, an excellent uh, first gesture. Then I honestly think um, before we start publicly messaging too much, the two sides should sit down and say, let's find things where we can actually make progress. Uh, Because to me, that's the most important thing. Uh, Rather than setting ourselves high worthy goals and then falling, falling short, we need to figure out how can we help each other demonstrate to our respective publics that cooperation transatlantically gains you more than confrontation uh, and and you know then you you pick from the menu. Uh, I agree with you. It's uh, it's climate change. It, uh, it's it's trade issues. Trading. It's, uh, it's the digital issues. The tech regulation issues. But let's try and figure out where are the areas. I, I hate to use the term low hanging fruit. Where are the areas where we can get some early wins and demonstrate that this new cooperation actually delivers for our respective constituencies.
2: Uh, David, um, let's um, assume. Let's be optimistic and assume that uh, the two sides can can uh, find some resolution on some of those uh, immediate questions and make progress on the low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, there are some longer-term um, issues that have uh, that 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 you know both the United States and the European Union are trying to find ways to deal with, and I and there are two interlocking ones. I would say one is. How to reform the WTO? Make sure it, it really uh, serves the interests of, of U.S. Um, of the U.S. and the EU, and also the challenge that China presents to the trading system. Um, do, how early do you think the that the do you think the U.S. and the EU ought to try to tackle those sort of bigger systemic issues? And if you do think they ought to try to to do so soon-ish. Um, what what do you think is the right way to do that? Should they pick up, for example, on the trilateral initiative that the US and the EU launched along with Japan during the Trump administration? Or is there some other way they should do that?
1: Well, I I agree with you that these are are two uh, very important issues. I mean, I would add, if I may, the the tech stuff, because I think that is hugely important. Uh, And so I put those three uh, uh, together. Um, I, I Honestly, I don't know about the WTO. I mean, the European view is well known. I mean, you know, we would love to see the appellate. We'd love to see the the, the appointment of the DG unblocked. We'd love to see uh, the issues of the appellate body on un, unlocked so that we can, as you say, uh, have a, a broader discussion about how to make the, the WTO fit for purpose in the 21st century. I, I just don't know I worry about how much this administration is going to want to prioritize those kind of trade issues in in the early stages, given the focus on domestic. I I mean, I say that not not as a trick, I just don't know. Uh, It has to be tested. I I wouldn't want us to put that up front and then for the administration to have to say, well, actually that's a second order priority for us because we've other stuff we want to get on with. I think China is a definite priority because I, I think it is the single biggest challenge we face. Um, and it, it, of course, it is a challenge which is economic, which is human rights, which is geopolitical. Um, I think we need a, a very high level discussion about what we're trying to achieve. Um, because I, I detect on both sides of the Atlantic that we, we blow hot and cold. Is it, is it a confrontation with China? Is it a decoupling? Or is there a compromise to be found with China? Can we somehow also engage with China? In climate change, for example, COP26. How can COP26 succeed if we don't have China on board? But at the same time, look at all the stuff that China is doing that we don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we, how do we, how do we manage that? And, and to be very honest with you, Peter, I don't, I don't actually have the answer. I mean, I don't think confrontation is the answer. I don't think decoupling is the answer. But I'm also conscious that engagement can look like weakness and appeasement. And and uh, I think that's really an important discussion that we have to have. How are we going to manage this, and how do we get this balance between uh, confronting the things we really don't like and 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 the the engagement that we need uh, in order
2: to have a, a, a to be a relatively aligned policy? Well, let me pick up on the third leg that you added to the stool, uh, the digital side of things. Of course, there are some shorter term, more conflictual pieces like the. Uh, Plans of some EU member states to uh, levy uh, digital service taxes. There are some ongoing differences of view on on uh, digital trade. But but the let me let me let, why don't we look at the proposals that the EU uh, that the Commission put out recently for a digital services act and a digital markets act. Yeah. They would go a bit farther than where U.S. law now stands on imposing responsibilities on on platform companies in terms of monitoring, transparency about their algorithms. Um, You know, this this issue of of um, the responsibility of Internet platforms, you know, among from among other among other reasons, is, 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 you know, gaining a lot of prominence because of the events we've the unfortunate events we've seen recently in Washington. Do, do you think that this area of how of how to um, manage the role of the internet platform companies necessarily has to be conflictual one with the Biden administration, or do you think we can find a lot of common ground? I, I don't think it, it has to be conflictual,
1: um, which is not to say that I don't recognize that it could become conflictual. Um, I, I think Firstly, the, the the proposals which the Commission has put out are just that. We're going to it's going to take two years to translate this into legislation. So people should not overreact, you know, to the first draft. There's, now it, it may get worse from an American perspective, or it may get better. But it's 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 the debate is now also starting in Europe on the basis of these proposals. But I also sense, to be honest with you, at least in the Democratic Party and this administration that people are also having some doubts about some of this stuff. Now, you know, can we therefore find some common ground? I would hope so, because when I listen to some of the things that are being said on both sides of the Atlantic, they, they are quite similar. The difference between us, as you well know, is that, you know, you tend to want industry to self-regulate or to, you know, find softer ways of doing it. We tend to go down the road of, of, of harder regulation, and, and that may be where we kind of disagree. Um, But, you know, I I, when I was still in Washington, there was talk of a federal privacy law uh, which could go a long way to solving some of the data privacy issues. So I'm I'm fairly optimistic that actually we we, we, we will probably share quite a lot of common analysis of the of the the prognosis of the problem. Um, It may be more difficult to agree what the what the what the uh, what the actual intervention should look like. But uh, I don't think this has to become a major source of confrontation.
0: Well, and I think it, you know, as it also highlights the importance, as you uh, mentioned, of setting a framework for collaboration at the leadership level between the United States and the European Union, so that any you know disagreements can be put in the context of that larger shared purpose. I think you know, there's, there's often a tendency to, from the United States side to focus on the differences, um, uh, whether those are regulatory or political, um, rather than seeing this as you know, minor variations within an overall objective of, of achieving um, something together. I mean, that, that also brings me back to the, the China question, which I thought you, you, know, you, you laid out uh, very well the, the problem that we have, because we all see China as, you know, rival, competitor, uh, and partner. You know, we, we, even if you look at the Biden administration's uh, statements, and I think also in Tony Blinken's um, uh, confirmation uh, testimony, it, the same kinds of language is used. But where I think we may differ is how much of uh, China's activity we put in the uh, adversarial box and how much we put in the partnership box. Um, and, and also whether we draw linkage, linkages across them. Uh, and you, know, to, you mentioned that there's a danger that um, you know, going down the partnership road blindly or without uh, paying attention to the other issues can look like weakness. Uh, and I wanted to ask, uh, you know, that's, that's an accusation some people have made in the United States with regard to the, the comprehensive agreement on investment, which the EU concluded, um, at least in principle, at the end of December, uh, just before the German EU presidency ended. Um, do you think there's a danger of weakness there given the overall context uh, and China cracking down in Hong Kong and Xinjiang uh, and in other places at the same time? Well, I, I, I,
1: I would be the first to admit that the timing, you know, the optics of the timing wasn't great, um, I agree. Um, having said that, we've been negotiating this damn thing for seven years. <laughs> and, you know, we made it very clear uh, early in, in last year that the objective was to finally do this at the end of the year. So there's a limit to how much, you know, assuming that you, you make the progress you think you need, and the European view is that we got the key concessions that we needed, you can debate that, um, it would have seemed very strange not to continue. I mean, you know... <laughs> Would you, if the United States were in that situation, would you have said? And we had a new, a new president of the Commission who appeared. Would you have said, "Oh, sorry, China, we need to talk to, we need to talk to Brussels before we." I mean, it just, I don't think, I don't think it applies in the real world. Now, having said that, um, this thing is not signed. Uh, it's it's, it's, a, it's a political agreement. There, there are bits of draft text which have been made available. It will not be signed on, on, at the earliest, as I understand it, until the summer. And that will have to be ratified. So we are, you know, we're probably 12 months off before this thing is finally wrapped up and, and done. And, and by the way, there's a lively debate on the European side. And not everyone is happy. The parliament is certainly not happy. Um, member states may have signed off on the principle of doing this Uh, in December, but they want to see the the small print and they want to, they will go through it with a fine tooth comb. And it may be that, you know, we have difficulties also on the European side. So I I think it would be a mistake on the US side to say, oh, this is appeasement. Uh, I think, you know, you have the phase one agreement. Uh, Look, our, our Asian allies all signed to the RCEP just recently. I mean, this is part of the schizophrenia I was talking about. Are we saying you can never reach any deal with China? None of us can reach a deal with China because it's, it's an adversary? Or do we have to, you know, do we say, well, when you can make progress on an issue, and in this case, there are some concessions from the Chinese, some market access openings, which we think are constructive, do you not pocket those and then move on and discuss the other stuff? Or do you say, sorry, we're so unhappy with what you're doing in Hong Kong, with what you're doing to the Uyghur, you know, we, we, we don't want to do any deals with you. And this yeah. is
0: the challenge. Yeah, and I, I guess that, you know, the, the, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, the thing that strikes me is whether the existence of the agreement and the fact that there is then a process to sign and then ratify and have it enter into force is that going to act as a constraint on the European Union from confronting other issues that relate to China's behavior in the intervening time? In other words, is it going to um, serve to kind of modulate um, European forthrightness and ability to collaborate with the United States during that period, um, or or is it not? Do you do you think that's- I could put it the other way,
1: Jeff. I could say, um, I mean, because people say this is a great diplomatic win for China. Well, if that's so, the Europeans saying to the Chinese, actually, we're not going to sign this thing now because we're very unhappy with XYZ, uh, is, is is leverage on China. <laughs> so, you know, you can see it from both sides. You're assuming that this will make the Europeans less willing to, to confront China on some of the difficult issues. I could say it's the other way around that the Europeans now have. A bit of leverage with China uh, to say, well, sorry, we're not. You know, we, we absolutely cannot get this through the European Parliament unless you move more quickly on the ILO conventions or on you know other issues. So, you can you can look at it from both directions. It seems to me.
2: So, yeah. so rather than an end point, one could look at it as a building block for transatlantic cooperation. Yes, I. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't think that the new administration is going to tear
1: up the Phase One agreement. Are they? <laughs> Um, I don't think they're going to ask the Chinese, the, the Japanese, or the Koreans to withdraw from the, the, OC, the Um, You know, we, we have to do what we can with China where, where we can, if it's, if it's intrinsically interesting in that area. But I agree, we have to then figure out how we send very strong messages where we, where we disagree. And I, I, I don't think for one moment, that this is simple i've dealt a lot with the chinese uh, in my professional career they're, they're they're tough negotiators they're difficult to deal with um, but we need really to to talk with each other about how we can find some some common understanding of what we're we're respectively trying to achieve it won't always be the same thing and it won't always be together but we need to be moving broadly speaking in the same direction
0: yeah uh, david uh, th- that brings up an interesting uh, point i mean i think you've made a a, a, a clear case for why the uh, on its merits the uh, and and politically the uh, the CAI um, you know, made sense um, when it was um, agreed. Um, there's also, of course, a lot of uh, criticism uh, from some people in the United States that this was really a legacy project for Chancellor Merkel, and that she wanted to have this done when she was at the helm of. Uh, you know, in the in the European uh, in the European Council, um, and um, and therefore um, that was the reason this got done. And and I think for a lot of people who look at it that way, they tend to see this then as a, a, it's a bigger issue of German power. Um, what's your view on that? Well, I mean,
1: look, firstly. You know, German power is real. Germany is the largest uh, member state. They're the strongest economy. Uh, they're you know the biggest contributor. So let's let's not be naive. Germany has a big influence in the European Union. Uh, by the way, that's how it should be. I mean, given given their relative weight in the system, it would be strange if they didn't have a lot of influence. Uh, my personal view is that they generally use that in a, in a very benign way uh, and only very rarely kind of seek to impose a very German view of things particularly when it comes to the euro or, or some of those issues. But in general, they really do work to try and forge a European consensus. Um, the Ger- Germany held the presidency. Now, you know, since the Lisbon Treaty, we talk a bit less about the six months rotating presidency, but Germany held the presidency. It was their job. They had an agenda to push through. Uh, they wanted to deal with the, 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 the recovery fund. They wanted to deal with the budget. And this was on their to-do list. Every presidency has a to-do list. The Portuguese presidency will have a to-do list, which I can assure you will have to do with maritime issues. And you know, every, every presidency brings to the table uh, a certain momentum on the things they feel are most important. So I think it would have been strange if, if, uh, if Germany had not tried to push this. But the, the important thing is they got the results that the Europeans said they needed, which is why all the other member states signed off. Uh, this was not just a political decision to, to, to conclude this for the sake of concluding it or to, to sign off on it politically for the sake of doing it. It was because the Ch- the Chinese moved sufficiently on the areas of importance to the Europeans on the market access stuff and on the ILO stuff, which you can debate, I recognize, uh, for the Europeans to feel, well, this is now the moment when we can indeed say we, we, we have the elements of a deal. And David? That would have been, I think it would have been, you know, I think any presidency frankly would have done it if you could have got those results. Whether another presidency would have got those moves from
2: the Chinese is an open question. David, um, going back to what you said about trade policy, and you're absolutely right, Uh, you know, uh, President Biden did make clear that's not going to be his priority, at least not in the traditional sense of launching liberalizing comprehensive negotiations, Right. But um, there does seem to be an area where trade policy is involved, and that is climate policy, yeah. where the Biden administration and the, uh, the European Commission seem to be quite in sync uh, about trying to re- reconcile trade policy and climate policy. One of the ways to do that is a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a tax on imports coming from um, uh, countries or from industries that are where the products are made in a carbon-intensive way, um, do you th- are you optimistic that that the U.S. and the EU could agree on a common approach to this issue, and also that it can be done in a way that's consistent with WTO rules? Um,
1: a cautious yes to that. Um, I mean, the Commission is going to come forward with its proposals uh, in the second quarter of this year. Um, my guess is that they will go down the road. You know, there are a couple of options. I mean, one is a uh, literally a levy uh, at, the, at the border. The other is a, a sort of VAT type tax, internal tax. And the third option is to um, open the emissions trading scheme to, uh, to, to importers, to exporters. Uh, my guess is they'll go for the third option uh, in a limited number of section, sectors. Uh, and yes, I think you can make that WTO compatible, not simple. And, you know, probably somebody will take a case at some point, but I, I, I think it is possible. Um, I think, I don't know what the U S thinking is. Um, but this will be once again, a proposal from the commission. That will be what the commission is saying to the member states and the parliament. This is how we think it should be done. Then we will have a debate. So, I mean, you know, optimistically, we're talking about putting something in place in 2023. Which, in my view, does give us a good deal of time to have transatlantic discussions about how this works, what the US is thinking of doing. And honestly, I don't know what mechanisms the US is, is thinking. Um someone suggested to me the other day that this administration might use uh, Article 232 to, to, to a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which I think would be the ultimate irony. Um, and I, I'm not sure I would recommend it, but it's, it's it'll be their choice. Um, but I so I, I think, yes, I think this is typically an area where we should try and. Uh, align our positions. Uh, This is all going to play into COP26. I mean, this to me is, you know, the immediate priority has got to be working. And here we get into trilateral discussion also with the British presidency of of COP26, uh, where the US, the the EU, UK figure out how we want to manage COP26, how we want to bring in China, how we want to deal with India uh, and some of the other developing countries who, who have a lot of problems with some of this stuff to make a success of, 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 of this next phase, because I, I think we all agree, uh, this is really serious stuff. And uh, we, we need to make a radical transformation of our economies and societies if we are not to head for you know planetary disaster. <laughs> and I think that view is, if I may, I, I, I always felt that what the Trump administration was doing was really king canute against the tide because america inc always seemed to me actually to have bought into to the the realities of climate change and the need to address those and so what i saw uh, the, the 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 states doing the governors of states the mayors of big cities what i saw business doing was going absolutely in the in the same direction uh, as as the europeans it was just the administration frankly that was pretty much out of sync with with the majority of American sentiment, and I think this administration can now harness that.
0: All right. Well, uh, David, um, this this has been a terrific discussion that has covered um, a such a wide range of topics, just as the relationship between the United States and the European Union does uh, when it's uh, at its best. So, uh, I, I want to thank you uh, for for joining us for shedding light uh, on, on this as. You know, which you can do in a way that very few other people can with your, uh, your long experience uh, with the United States and in, in the European mission. So thank you for being our guest today. And we look forward to keeping in touch with you. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, we look forward to having you again with us soon on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.